Well, uh, I am going to kind of uh, run through a, a, a bunch of scripture, but really what I want to do this morning is uh, I want to remind us, kind of take us back to a reminder of our, why our church changed its name to Maranatha. Uh, I, I really want to, over the next several weeks, do a series of reminders about this uh, that are specifically pointed towards this kind of tension that exists in, in, even in the word. If, just as a reminder, if you don't know, Maranatha is, a, is a, really a phrase. We, we translate it as a word. It was an Aramaic phrase, kind of a derivative of Hebrew, that depending upon how you pronounce it could either mean the Lord has come, like he, you know, like as a watchword, we could say, hey, you know, do you know him? Do you know, do you know that he came and he lived and he died and he rose again for us? Or it could mean if you say Maranatha, that the Lord is coming, like he's coming back, or, it, or as a plea, like, come, Lord. Literally, the, that, that, the song born by uh, African slaves, Kumbaya, just north of Savannah here, is, is a Maranatha cry. Come, come, Lord. Come and deliver us from oppression. And it's this powerful word. I, I, word. I, I have this belief in my heart that it may be the, there may not be a better word to describe, you know, the totality of what it means for us as believers to long for Jesus and Jesus gets at this in a lot of different ways. And one of them, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, uh, it, it's in a single sentence. And I love the book of Mark because it's so action-packed. It doesn't waste any time. And Jesus just says it so clearly here. He, he, he shows us the tension that exists between the prophets who predicted a day was coming and the apocalyptic view of the future that there's something yet to come. And, and, and there's something about it. That, so it's past, present, and future wrapped up in one passage, and I'll show you. Jesus says this. This is Jesus announcing himself to the world in his ministry in Mark 1. He says, the time promised by God, in other words, the time the prophets talked about, a messianic figure, a, 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 a man who would come to save Israel, a, a, a specific man at a specific time in a specific place for a specific people, local thing. So Jesus came to Israel for the Jewish people, a local thing that, that, that the Jewish prophets prophesied about. He's saying that time is fulfilled in me. So he's, 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 this is such a bold claim when people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. This is such a bold claim right here that the promise that God made that one would come has been fulfilled because I'm standing here. It's a huge Claim and in, and in a way he takes all a prophecy and just and says it's right here right now. So in that sense he says it's been fulfilled. And then he says the kingdom of God is near. So repent of your sins and and believe the good news. There is this necessary tension that exists within this one claim of Jesus about the past prophecies being fulfilled in him and and the fact that there is something that is in him that is now available and there's something that's not quite completely all here yet. And it's hard to wrap this up in, in exactly what this means, but I always think of it this way. It's like Jesus is, um, um, imagine Jesus is coming to our house today and, and he's coming to, to be with us. And we, we, you know, I don't know that I've ever met anyone anywhere in the world when I talk about Jesus coming to their house would go, well, that's a bad thing. People who don't even know anything about him still think, well, he's a good man. And so this, this man, Jesus, is coming to our house, and he comes to our house. He, he pulls into the driveway, and I say to you, he's here. 
Is he in the house yet? He's not in the house yet, is he? But he's here. And, and, and imagine he comes and he knocks at the door and we say, this is Jesus knocking at the door. Is Jesus here? Well, he's here, but he's not in the house yet. So, so we're not just going to leave him knocking at the door. When we say Jesus is here, we don't, we're not just going to leave him out there. And what Jesus is saying is there is some sense in which he's knocking at the door still. Like he's here. He's come. Maranatha, he came and did all this for us. But Maranatha, he's coming. And he's going to come back and he's going to complete all these things. And there's this sense of anticipation. And what I believe is, is that we have to posture ourselves, that we benefit by posturing ourselves to, to be in the right place. Like, like if I said Jesus was back there right now knocking at the door and he's going to come, you would get yourself ready, wouldn't you, to receive, to receive the king. And so I want to talk to you this morning about what I think is one of the keys Perhaps the central key to posturing yourself for the kingdom of God, and it's this, joy. Joy. One of the really cool things we did on Thursday when we prayed with our friends from uh, Builders of the Faith is that as they made sure in our small groups, every time we finished a session of prayer, that we sealed it with praise. I'd never done that before, and it was extraordinary. We just sealed it with praise. So we clapped and we gave praise to God at the end of every prayer. I thought, man, what a wonderful way to, 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 to embed joy even in our intercession. And so joy is this, it's, it's, this, it's, it's this incredibly important but hard to exactly grasp. But in, in my past, I've preached this as being absolutely different from happiness. And I'm telling you that I'm, I'm no longer really in that place. I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with ambiguity. I used to say that happiness is just circumstantial. It can come or go, but joy is, can't ever go anywhere. I don't know that I, I mean, happiness and joy and delight in the Lord and the scriptures seem to be fairly interchangeable. I do believe there's a difference, but I don't believe it's as pronounced as we made it out to be. And you, I'll get at that in a minute as, with regards to the, the importance of the emotion, even in this. But I'll tell you this, that joy is predominantly embedded in expectancy. Joy is predominantly in, 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 in something good, believing in something good that's coming. It's like the kid counting down the days until, you know, she gets to open the presents under the tree. In the Bible, joy is repeatedly shown as, as to be the natural outcome. It's a byproduct almost of fellowship with God or being in right relationship with God. To, to be in right relationship with God produces joy. To be in wrong relationship with God produces despair. And, and Jesus says it this way in John chapter 15. And we essentially worship through this concept. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with, not joy, with his joy. He doesn't just want us to, and this is why I think there maybe there is still a bit of a different, a nuanced difference. Jesus doesn't want us just to have happiness as the world equates it. He actually wants us to have a very particular type of joy, his joy, and he wants that, his joy to be in us to the point that our joy will overflow. The Greek word that he uses there, it, you know, when he's talking about us being filled with the joy of Jesus, it literally means to flood. He's saying, you know, the Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place. And this is exactly the prayer of Jesus, that he would be able to come into our lives, that we would abide in him in such a deep way that he would literally flood our lives with his joy. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd be a good day. I, I, I would, I'd like that. But it's, all, it's, 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 it's not so easy always to lay hold of this joy. It's a bit like catching lightning in a bottle. Right? I mean, maybe that's just me. I'll give you some examples. For, for example, Christmas 
is we call it the season of joy, but usually around Christmas, I see more signs on stores and Christmas cards that read joy than I see actual signs of joy. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's oftentimes referred to as the most depressing time of the year because of stress and loss and so forth. Or think about, think about something so joyful like a party that you're planning or dinner with some dear friends and how often uh, there is so much stress leading up to that joyous event that when it's over, you go, whew, I'm glad that's over. Right? Remember graduation in here? Yeah, it was a joyful day, but it's a lot of work, and sometimes it's hard to get at. But we were actually created by God for this. One of the most significant ways we understand joy biblically is through identity. In other words, what are you worth? The world would ascribe or define value to you by what you own, like salary, wealth, power, appearance, fame. But as a Christian, our worth is embedded in us because Jesus is worthy and he says we are. So God's love has made us important to God. And and so without having to prove ourselves, he actually frees us up to enjoy life no matter who we are and even no matter our circumstances. I, I love a book by uh, Lewis Smeads that was written many years ago called How Can It It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? It's a great book. But in this book, he writes, you and I were created for joy, and if we miss it, we miss the reason for our existence. Moreover, the reason Jesus Christ lived and died on earth was to restore us to the joy we've lost. His spirit comes to us with the power to believe that joy is our birthright because the Lord has made this day for us. Look, this is power. Jesus died to restore the joy that is our inheritance, Maranatha. And the joy that we lost when Adam and Eve rebelled in a garden and set the stage for our own rebellion, that were products of their rebellion, it, it, you know, they got us kicked out of the garden. I don't appreciate that. Um, as I've said many times, the existence in the garden is a very, very good thing, naked and unashamed. A day in the garden with my wife, naked and unashamed, seems like a good day. And they got us kicked out, you know, because of their rebellion. And the good news, though, is that when we realize we've been living in spiritual rebellion against God, and by rebellion, sometimes I mean, like, gross, terrible actions, but oftentimes what, what we really get into is more just like an attitude of, I don't need you, or I got this, I'm good here, God. But the good news is, is that we have the opportunity to actually receive Jesus, to invite him into our lives as the one who saves us from ourselves. And and then he sets us back on solid ground. And then he offers us leadership for every step of the way for the rest of our lives into eternity, if we would allow him to do so. And then he gives us the promise of his very spirit, his Holy Spirit, his joy put within us. And with the Holy Spirit comes this beautiful gift called joy this, our, our birthright. It's not one option out of many that we can, like, maybe it's a birthright. It's ours. It's, it's part of our inheritance. He created us to be joyful, to be filled literally with joy, and there's really no doubt about that. Look, you can oftentimes tell the things that God put embedded within the heart of, of mankind by things that are universal, like eternity. Ecclesiastes says eternity, God put eternity in the hearts of men. I've never gone anywhere in the world that people didn't have a grasp or a grip on or a longing for eternity, even trying to answer the question of what does it mean. And I think the same thing is true for the desire for happiness. The desire for happiness is universal. You desire a happy life. If you say you don't, you're lying. 
How many of you desire a wicked life full of suffering? You, you know, this is what we want. And, and this is how Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, said it. He said, all men, people, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The, the will, our will inside of us, never takes the least step but to this object, the object being the desire for happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. The desire, you know, to be happy. And it, it seems that this passion within us, this yearning to be happy is universal and undeniable, just like it's unavoidable to, for your stomach to growl when it's hungry. It's, it's, it's within us. But I know what you're, what you're wrestling with because I wrestle with the same thing. Isn't the number one passion, I'm speaking to those of you who know God, love God, and are called according to his purposes, isn't the number one passion in our lives, doesn't it have to be a passion to bring glory to God? Well, so how does this God-given passion to be happy, this yearning for it, fit with this tremendously central biblical passion for the glory of God, for us to reveal the glory of God. How do we bring those two passions together to bring God glory on one hand and to pursue a happy, joy-filled life on the other? Well, I like how, how uh, theologian uh, pastor uh, John Piper sums it up. He says this, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. I love that line. God is most, satis- most glorified. I bring the most glory to God when I am most satisfied in him. In other words, these aren't two separate projects, two separate passions. Bringing glory to God and pursuing happiness and joy in my life, they're actually one passion. It's a single-minded, undivided heart thing to know him, to bring him glory with, with my mind and to delight in him and delight in what I know of him and, and, and to long for him and to find the joy of joy-filled heart is one passion, not two. God is glorified by being delighted in. Now, can I just take a couple minutes and talk about the other side of the coin? I want to just give you some of what I see as being obstacles to us actually receiving this thing. Jesus prays this prayer that we would be filled with his joy. And I think that if we posture ourselves for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, we can have everything he wants. But I think we also have to deal with some obstacles. And if I have your permission, I'd like to go through a couple of those. All right. Number one obstacle that I, I'm not sure it's number one in order, but, it's, but it, I think it might be, at least in my heart, it, it seems to be the number one. The number one obstacle I see to us having a joy-filled life is our past. Your past is oftentimes the most tremendous obstacle you have to overcome in order to actually be filled with the joy of the Lord. Because, well, I don't know. Maybe some of you, like Brian was talking about testimonies, you know, Maybe some of you don't have wild and crazy testimonies of going far astray, but maybe some of you are like the older brother and the prodigal son who didn't ever really go away from God, but you resent people who did. And, you know, whatever it is, you've got something in your past. And, and the, the challenge, it comes right here. What can be done about our past? What can we do about what we've already done? You can't undo it. You can't change it. But we can, by the grace of God, forget about it. Now, that might not mean having it erased from your memory like some sort of computer program where we smash the hard drive and it's gone. It may not mean that because I think there's actually value in, in remembrance. But we can do something like this. 
Philippians 3, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of, of it, it being the whole thing, the whole life with God. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Jesus. Leave behind, we sang this, leave behind your regrets and mistakes and come to the altar. This is, this is the program. This is, it's an unchanging program that God has offered time immemorial. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you haven't done. I don't care who you are, where you've been. Leave your past behind and come to me. This is such a tremendous deal. It's the greatest business transaction ever offered. The sin of man for the righteousness of God. Who wouldn't take that deal? So, second, another obstacle. It's a, it, I'll breeze through these. Lack of forgiveness. Here's the basic tact here. When you need to forgive somebody, don't wait too long. When you wait, it carves something in you that becomes harder and harder. We have to start forgiving even before we are ready to forgive. Now, that is so mind-boggling to me, but it is true. I've watched this over and over again, not only in my pastoral ministry, but in my own life. When I wait to forgive, it's worse. And what I do is I end up giving people space, rent-free space in my, in my brain to torment me by simply not letting them off the hook and forgiving. Offense-taking within the body of Christ is the most treacherous, divisive thing that I think exists for us, divisive, being divided over bitterness and offense-taking. Because what happens is with, when we fail to forgive or we refuse to forgive, we actually choke off our own joy. We kill our soul by, by living in this place. People carrying hate and resentment. You can begin to invest in your hate and your resentment in yourself so deeply that you gradually begin to define yourself by it, by what you're against. Jesus takes it so far as to say, one of the most significant, if you were to reduce Christianity down to its bare tax, he would say one of the pure essence signs of, Christi or of Christians is enemy love. We actually love people that the world says we should, we should naturally not love whether it's somebody who's hurt us or somebody that the world deems as being, you know, uh, an enemy. And one of the most difficult commands that God gives us is to forgive our enemies. It's, you know, in light of, particularly in light of cruelty or things that are evil that we've done to each other, it seems like asking like an infant to climb Mount Everest. It seems impossible, but it's possible uh, because the Lord tells us it is. And I'm telling you, that, that forgiveness, letting people off the hook and loving people who you would otherwise deem unlovable will bring you joy. Three, I need your help with this. Are you guys willing to, to, to participate? You're doing me a lot of good. Okay, just go with me, okay? This one, this one is huge. This is a huge obstacle to your joy. I'll just tell you what it is first and then we'll walk through it. A huge, huge, huge obstacle to your joy is your dignity. Your self-perceived understanding of being dignified. So if you can, stand. If you're able to stand, stand. I'm not going to give you any instruction. I'm just going to do something, and I'm going to see, I'm going to see how you respond to it, okay? This is something of a social experiment. It won't last long. Just hang with me for like 30 seconds, okay? You ready?
I see you. Look how dignified some of you are. You guys got the joy back in the back. Youth group, the youth group is lacking joy. It doesn't matter if you know. It's the chicken dance. Mike Connor, you need the joy. All right. Here's the question. Here's the question I have for you. When did you stop dancing, silly? I'm serious. <laughs> what? Sorry, Siri. <laughs> when did you stop dancing, silly? When did you stop getting down on the floor and playing with children? Is it your dignity that you're worried about? Is it your dignity that actually causes you to, to, to hold yourself in this, in this place of seriousness that goes beyond what God would have you be? That you take yourself so seriously that you, that you value your dignity over the joy of the Lord? 2 Samuel 6. Go read this as a homework assignment. David, the ark comes back into into Jerusalem, and David is so overjoyed by the presence of God that he actually goes outside and he dances, like the chi- probably the chicken dance, I don't know. He dances before the Lord, wait for it, in his underwear. He doesn't care. Now his wife cares, and she says, you're the king. How can you do such an undignified thing like this as the king? And he says, this is the presence of God. He says, I will become more undignified than this. I love that. How much does your dignity impede your joy? Selah. That means think about it. All right, quickly, and I'm going to wrap it up. Another obstacle, times of trouble. Or as we say in the South, times of trouble. No, I just made that up. I don't know that we say that in the South. (laughs) If you go to the North, you can say anything. I love going outside of America and preaching because you can say whatever you want. This is what we say in the South, and they believe you. Here in the South, you can't do it as easy. But times of trouble, finding keeping, and even growing our joy in the midst of trouble. The Bible gives some commands that are extremely hard to understand and even harder to live out. For example, enemy love that I talked about. But also, the Bible says not to worry about anything. Really? Anything? I mean, some of us, many of us, spend a good portion of every waking hour worried or anxious about something. And how could God reasonably expect us not to worry? For me, even harder than, the, than those two commands uh, are these commands. Out of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, always be joyful. <laughs> that's not a, it's not like a, you know, like a, that's not supposed to be an inspirational thing we write up on calligraphy on our, on our walls. It's a command. It's, it's like a military command. Or even better, this one found in James 1. When trouble comes your way, 
Consider it an opportunity for great joy. How, when's the last time you did that? Man, there's a, we, we have, we, there's, there's like a massive problem at the end of this month. We have the mortgage, the car broke down, and the kids' payment for this. We have no money for all this stuff. Isn't this a great opportunity for joy? <laughs> Just lost a loved one. Man, I mean, this is something that's really, really deep. And, you know, what, are you kidding? You When trouble comes my way, my first thoughts aren't usually about experiencing great joy. My typical reaction is more along the lines of some fear, maybe some panic, some worry, sometimes even some hopelessness, a feeling of it, even though I know it's not real. And at the very least, I reserve some right, some, some I think it's some sort of American, you know, uh, entitlement to gripe and moan about my troubles. And at least I, I have that. It, I hardly see it as an opportunity for great joy. But what if, it's a big what if, what if joy were something more like a choice and a journey and it's something that we could actually lay hold of even in the midst of these times? I used to think of the, that life for me came in waves. There was a wave of good and pleasant times, happy circumstances followed by a wave of bad and unpleasant circumstances with a lot of kind of ebb and flow in between, you know, like a pendulum. You know, wow, this is really great. Nah, now it's not so great. And there was these in-between times that was neither good or bad. And, and that it, lots of, you know, hills and valleys. You know, a lot of our music kind of sings about this, you know, going through the hills and valleys of life. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. But I've come to realize this isn't really true, that, that, that life is much more like a parallel set of train tracks with joy and sorrow running together throughout our days. And, and, you know, if you see this picture, I mean, think about this. Every day of your life, good things happen. Beauty, pleasure, fulfillment, perhaps even excitement and adventure in your day. That's the track of joy. But every day of your life also holds disappointment and challenges and struggles. And if, you, if, you, if, you spend, if you're wasting your life watching news and on social media, then perhaps way more disappointment on the track of sorrow awaits you because, that, because it's, it's running alongside of our lives. And most of us try to outsmart the sorrow track by concentrating all of our efforts on the joy track as if by some sort of power of the will, a uh, positive outlook, or, or some sort of outright denial of, of reality, we can make the sorrow track go away and live our best life now. But it's impossible because even the, the Bible tells us that joy and sorrow will always be linked. And in the strangest, one of the strangest paradoxes of creation, it, at the exact moment that we are experiencing, you and I are experiencing pain, we are also aware of a sweetness of, of, of love and beauty that can still be found in the world. And likewise, at the exact moment we're full of delirious delight, we have the nagging realization that things still aren't quite perfect. I mean... I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but my exhibit A of the two tracks being side-by-side are childbirth. Not that I've ever experienced it, but I've watched it a few times. And so no matter how much power of positive thinking we try to employ or how hard we try to visualize only happiness, the sorrow track remains, and one of our toughest challenges in life is to learn how to live uh, on both of those tracks at the same time, but there's hope. There's hope in this because look, look ahead with me. Stand on the tracks. If you were to stand on those tracks and you were to stare in the distance as far as you can stare to the horizon, what happens to those tracks, those parallel tracks? 
those tracks eventually, those two tracks eventually become one, and they're no longer distinguishable as two tracks. And that's the way it will be for us, too, according to the Bible. During our lifetime, we stand on the tracks looking for signs of Christ's return. We watch for the sights and sounds to alert us you know, that, that his appearance is growing close. And sometimes we whisper, Maranatha. And sometimes we shout it out because we can see the signs. And we stare into the horizon. We hope that we can catch some glimpse of his glory. And one day, in the brightness of his coming, we will meet him face to face. And when we do, the tracks of joy and the tracks of sorrow actually merge. The sorrow disappears forever and only the joy remains. And everything will finally make sense. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. The Lord declares this over Israel and grafts us into this promise. But until that day comes, we live with parallel tracks, joy and sorrow. But for now, you and I were created for for joy. and, and, And if we miss it, we, we somehow miss the reason for our existence. If our joy is honest joy, it somehow has to be congruent with, with suffering and sorrow and human tragedy. It's actually a test of joy's integrity. Is our joy compatible with pain? If we can only be joyful in the absence of pain, then it's, there actually isn't any integrity to it. And so really what I'm making an argument for, I'm making a case for, is Christian hedonism. I hope that provokes somebody. Maybe one of you who's more... Um, uh, legalistic. This might, this might provoke you. Because I believe the pursuit of pleasure and living for pleasure is actually how we're wired by God. Can I, can I, can I unpack my heresy for a few minutes? The more I think about it, the more I think that this is the goal of my life, the pursuit of pleasure. God, the, the, the pleasure of God and the pleasure of my life colliding into one life. Why? Well, I'll tell you why I think this is the case. Because the Bible commands that we pursue delight. It actually commands it. As I've told you, and it, it, you know, it says in several cases, I'll give you a few more. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. The Bible commands us to actually manifest in tangible ways our joy. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord when you feel good. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul says, I don't think you heard it. Let me say it again. Rejoice. Have joy. He says in Romans 5, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In the same way, rejoice in suffering. Have joy. He's, these are commands. I, I, look, spare me your objections, whether it's, you know, whether it's body language or emails. I, I, I'm with you. All this talk about delighting in God and being satisfied in God and rejoicing in God and being happy in God and content in God you know, I get it. It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to grasp. And, and maybe the great objection that some of you would have is one that would probably be na- that come natural to me is, aren't we going to get carried away with all this subjectivity and emotionalism? Aren't emotions going to take over our lives if we just say we're just going to pursue joy? I mean, what about, you know, is it okay to not have it? I mean, isn't Christianity really a commitment? Isn't it a decision? Isn't it just a will to follow King Jesus? Let the emotions come along. That's kind of, this is our, our, let the emotions come along if they have to, but if they don't come along, it's no loss. We can live without them. Now, I, I, I kind of think that, well, I did write that, but I think that I really could just write that very honestly. 
But something rises up within me that I believe is truth that says baloney to those objections. You know why? Because emotions are commanded everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. Joy is commanded. Rejoice in the Lord. Hope is commanded. Hope in God. Fear is commanded. Fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. Now you go, is that really, is he talking about the emotion of fear? Yes, he's talking about the emotion of fear. How do you know it's an emotion? I, I mean, I don't know. The analogy I always think of is, if I'm laying in a tent in the middle of the night and I hear a sound outside that sounds like a bear and I light up my flashlight and I see the silhouette of a bear, I don't think to myself, you know, I should probably start to produce some fear. Peace is commanded. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Zeal is commanded. Never flag in zeal. Grief is commanded. Weep with those who weep. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Desire is commanded. Earnestly desire the sincere spiritual milk of the word. Tenderheartedness is commanded in Ephesians 4. Brokenness and contrition commanded in Psalm 51. Gratitude commanded. Give thanks for everything. Now, imagine a little six-year-old kid on Christmas Day who wants a big red fire truck for Christmas, and some insensitive relative gives him a pair of black socks instead. This is a hypothetical. <laughs> and as he opens it, and the relative is sitting there, his mother can say to him hypothetically, Jeffrey, say thank you to your grandmother. And he can say, thank you, grandmother, for the black socks. He can obey the command, but is it gratitude? Saying the words, I thank you, God, for my my pancreas or for my health or my wife or, my, or, or the loss of my friend isn't gratitude. Gratitude is, is a deep emotion. When you, don't get the red, when you get the red fire truck, you have gratitude, and when you don't get it, you don't. And yet, it's commanded. Do you see the, do you see the tension here? Do you see the irony? That it, you, can't just, you, know, you can't just have it, but yet it's commanded by God. And I don't know how to make that all make sense for you. And you know what? Here's my, here's my, they accused me in the back earlier, I was talking about this in the sound booth, they said it was deep, and I, I, I rarely ever accused of being deep, but if there's anything deep about this, here's the deep spot of the sermon. God has the right to command of you what you cannot turn on and off like a spigot. He has the right to command these emotions of you, even though you can't really just turn them off like that. So I reject the idea that we're supposed to just put our emotions in the caboose of the train. I think we need fire in the engine room. I'm basically wrapping up, so whoever's coming up, Kevin, or I mean, Kayla or Brian, both. You know, what about duty? You know, you're saying, what about following God out of duty? You know, here, here's, a, here's a quote on duty by uh, an apologist named Edward Carnell. He's not with us anymore, but he's a great apologist. He said, suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must but not that kind of must. Now, let me interpret that for you. He's asking, is it my duty to kiss my wife goodnight? And she hears the question and thinks, it is a duty, but it isn't the kind of duty you're thinking of. And here's the next sentence. What she means is this. Unless some sort of spontaneous affection for me motivates you to give me a kiss goodnight, then your overtures of giving me a kiss are actually stripped of any value. Do you hear what that's saying? It's saying, yes, there's such a thing as duty in the world, how many of you are veterans of war? Or, or just veterans? How many of you are veterans? We enjoy our freedoms that we, we love the thought of duty. You know, particularly when we think of like, I mean, I was just in Europe through the, through the Ardennes Forest and the battlefields where thousands, tens of thousands of, of humans died 
and you realize the profound impact of even on the land to this day. You know there's such a thing as duty, but there is, however, a duty that that really doesn't do any honor to the country or honor to the wife or honor to God because it's duty without a heart in it. It's duty that has relegated the emotion to the caboose and doesn't keep it in the fire in the you know in the engine room. One other objection that comes to mind to me, and I'll kind of use this to close, is the idea of, you know, saying to people, you should pursue joy with all your might, with everything you've got, and you should do it without any exception. Aren't you begetting self-centered people, not God-centered people? You know, is that true? Is that, that that's, a, that's a significant, that's a real question, isn't it? Well, this is my, my closing question, I guess. It takes me back to my two passions that I want so bad to be united and single, the glory of God and the desire to be filled with joy. Are they really one? Or is the pursuit of one going to lead me to a self-centered life that denies the other? And, 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 and as I think about that and I try to come up in my mind with human analogies that all break down at some point to try to help me understand and maybe help you understand it, the, here's the one that I felt most helpful, found most helpful to me. And I always think of it in relationship to Carol. We've been married... 31 years now. We're in our 32nd year. Many of you in this room have been married much longer, so I'm not claiming authority or expertise. I can only tell you about my life. But suppose next year in July on our anniversary, I come home with 32 long-stemmed roses somehow concealed behind my back, and I ring the doorbell, which I, I never do any of this. So Carol's somewhat surprised. She she's completely surprised. She comes to the door. She looks at me and says, what's going on? Why did you do that? And I pull out these roses and I say, happy anniversary, love. And she says, oh, Jeff, they're beautiful. Why, why, why did you do this? And I say to her, it's my duty. What's wrong with that answer? It's a true answer. Isn't it a true answer? What's wrong with it? Why is it a profoundly defective answer? Why? What's wrong with duty? We want to extol duty. We want to bring glory to God and serve Him. It's our duty as Christians, but there's something wrong in it. Let me replay the tape and give you the right answer. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Carol. Oh, Jeff, they're beautiful. Why? And I say something like this. I couldn't help myself. Nothing makes me happier than to buy roses for you. And by the way, I got us a reservation. Why don't you go change your clothes because we're going out tonight for a nice meal. There's nothing, there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. Now, not in a million years would she respond to that. Nothing you'd rather do? Why don't you think about me sometime? Why? Why doesn't she accuse me in that case of self-centered, Christian hedonism, pleasure seeking for myself in that moment. You know why. Your whole, your laughter, your whole heart right knows the right answer right now. You don't need me to explain, but I'm going to put it in a sentence for you. You know that when I express my delight in her, wanting to spend the evening with her, I magnify her. I extol her. I lift her up. I honor her. And that's what worship is. Let your passion be single. Go after the Lord this way. 
bring him glory and say, man, there's nothing I love more than to, to bring you glory. Come flood this place and fill me with joy. The Lord's not going to look at that and say, how self-centered of you. He gets it, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful, Father, that you're, you've not created us where we have to choose between your glory and our satisfaction. You've designed us so that we, in, in your very image, will only actually find our true and lasting satisfaction in you, Lord. We can't find it apart from you. So my exhortation to you is, we close, is that you would have one single passion, namely a passion to be happy in God. Because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Why don't you stand with me if you can. Jesus, we want your joy. I don't understand all the nuances between happiness and joy and delight and desire and all that, but I know that I want to glorify you with my joy. I want to spend time with you in the same way that a a good spouse desires to spend time with their lover. Of course it brings me pleasure, but it also magnifies you. It's one passion, Lord. Give us undivided hearts. If you want to come forward and pray, come to the altar. Flood this place, you know, come to the altar. Leave your worries, your past regrets behind, all that. There's joy to be found here, so you can come join me if you want.